This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. I want you to get mad. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Let's see if I can remember how to do all this. Is my mic on? <laughs> hey, how about that? That's a good start. You know, it's been a month since I've actually sat in this air chair in the cozy confines of our flagship station here at AM740, Zuma Radio, 550 Queen Street East in Toronto, the good, the big smoke, Hogtown. Uh, for all of you listening uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere, around the world on online. Uh, let me give you a sense. You know, people say, oh, you work in radio, how exciting and how romantic. And yes, it's all of those things. But uh, um, is it glamorous? Well, not exactly. Let me give you a, a sense of what happened as I wheeled in here this morning. Uh, first thing I do, I come into the um, into the studio and I say hello to the uh, the host of the program that precedes mine. That would be the venerable George Genescu. And I say, George, happy happy uh, happy New Year! And uh, he's celebrating uh, the old he's old calendar, old calendar. So he's celebrating Christmas. And uh, so I greet George, and then I ask him, can I get you a cup of tea? Because George is, uh, you know, he's been a little under the weather. So um, he says, no thanks. He says, but be careful in the kitchen. And uh, so I wander into the kitchen to get my own uh, cup of chai, and the sink is backed up. And, you know, it's, we're not quite back into the swing of things here, so, you know, people have been away and so forth. Anyway, that sink is... Uh, looking somewhat like Love Canal. <laughs> so I decide to roll up my sleeves. It's like 9.30. I got a little bit of time before I start to prep the show. Uh, so a half an hour later, I'm bailing. I'm bailing that sink out. And uh, because I can't even see where the drain is. I mean, the, the water is brown, ladies and gentlemen. So I can't see where the drain is to get the plunger in there. I'm just guessing. I'm not sticking my hand in there. We don't have any of the rubber Playtex gloves. So I'm bailing like mad, walking... The uh, a, uh, I, th- I grabbed a uh, some sort of a I don't know a, uh, a salad bowl or something and I'm bailing the water, walking it down the hall to the washroom. I get the sink emptied uh, and then I start pouring hot water down. Anyway, so I clean up the sink and I do a little bit of dishes. So radio glamorous? <laughs> well, you be the judge. Hey, how are you? Good to have you aboard. 
And I want to uh, quickly direct you to the website because I've got some interesting webs- uh, some stories up there. Uh, RichardSerrett.com. RichardSerrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T.com. 20 years in the biz, still spelling my last name. <laughs> RichardSerrett.com. That's your portal, of course, to the conspiracy show. And um, I posted some stories up there recently that I think you should be uh, aware of. Uh, those Navy SEALs supposedly involved in the uh, the killing of Osama bin Laden. Of course, a new movie out in the uh, the theaters uh, that's uh, part of the myth-making industry. Uh, it's about the team that went in there and supposedly killed Osama bin Laden in uh, May of, uh, when was that, 2011? Which is kind of odd because, you know, most of the uh, the reports claimed he died somewhere around Christmas of 2001. In any event... Uh, these uh, SEALs, the so-called, the so-called killers of Osama bin Laden, um, strangely are dying off. One fairly recently in Afghanistan, a supposed victim of a suicide, or was he suicided? So you'll want to have a look at that story. And um, then, of course, some stories regarding the supposed or the, uh, the proposed new handgun legislation or gun control legislation uh, by uh, U.S. Congresswoman Dianne Feinstein. Some interesting takes on that. Those are all found on the website richardserrett.com. And, of course, these are stories you won't read or see in the mainstream news. The mainstream news is actually the subject of the program tonight. We're going to talk about the role of the television anchor and their role in the matrix, how they are carefully vetted and selected and groomed by the corporatocracy that owns the major news outlets, certainly in the United States, and how they are used to brainwash and dumb down the public. A series of must-read blogs by my next guest, and we'll direct you to, to those so that you can uh, sort of catch up and get, get, get up to speed on this most important topic, how television networks act as mind control. And joining us on the line from uh, California, one of my faves, really belongs in the pantheon of uh, uh, truth seekers. He's the author of an explosive collection called The Matrix Revealed, John Rappaport was a candidate for a U.S. congressional seat in the 29th District of California, nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. He has worked as an investigative reporter for 30 years, writing articles on politics, medicine, and health for CBS Health Watch, L.A. Weekly, Spin Magazine, Stern, and other newspapers and magazines in the U.S. and Europe. He's delivered lectures and seminars on global politics, health, logic, and creative powers to audiences around the world. And, of course, he is the man behind the very popular uh, website. And this is one you definitely want to bookmark, nomorefakenews.com. A great pleasure to welcome John Rappaport once again to The Conspiracy Show. Hello, John. How are you? Okay. Good, Richard. Great to be here with you, always. Uh, listen, congratulations on the, 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 the recent series of... You have just been... Your fingers are aflame, my friend. You've been just <laughs> uh, one great blog after the other. And uh, we'll, again, we'll tell people how to get to, to these so they can read them. But I wanted to focus on television network news as mind control. And, and of course, you've been writing about this as uh, a recent series of tragic events, 
Uh, we, of course, we had Hurricane Sandy, and then we had the uh, before that we had the Aurora uh, theater shooting, uh, a spate of, of horrible uh, shootings uh, and massacres uh, last year, and then most recently, of course, we had the horrible event at Newtown in Connecticut at uh, Sandy Hook. And uh, I had an interesting discussion with a parent at a birthday party recently, and she, uh, she, she, um, she was talking about the network news, how she doesn't watch and believe the network news anymore. And she called it the new religion, and she called people like Wolf Blitzer the new priests of this new religion. I thought, that's an interesting take. That's an interesting idea. What do you think of that? Well, it's uh, pretty accurate, I would say, because, you know... In former days, when you had a country or a region where there was just one church and you had to belong to it because there was the priest class and everybody was from birth uh, involved forcibly, then that's where all the information came from about anything that was considered to be important. And so now we have the news, and particularly television news. And so who are the modern priest class in this secular religion? They are the anchors. They are the people who tell us the story of our time, basically. And they have a, a shrinking audience, but it's still pretty tremendous in terms of influence. So, yes, I would agree with that. Yeah, the, a shrinking idi- audience indeed, because people are starting to, to vote with their feet and move on elsewhere to find their news, uh, places like nomorefakenews.com. Uh, and, but there's also, I'm detecting an anger and a frustration out there. People are starting to catch on that they're being manipulated. One, again, this conversation with a parent at a birthday party, and she was, she was angry, she was seething. Uh, again, in the wake of Sandy Hook, she's, she said we're being told when to grieve, how to grieve, uh, you know, when is the right time to grieve. Uh, w- w- you know, they're defining the parameters uh, uh, of, of the discussion around these events. And you made a very interesting point in one of your blogs about how these, uh, these people, these, uh, the, you know, the, the survivors of these horrific events, they come on and they, they're told, you know, in advance. They're vetted in advance by the producers how this conversation with the anchor back in the studio is going to go. And and I, I just want you to sort of extrapolate or expand on that a little bit because this is a, this is a real eye-opener for people who don't know how the network news is put together. Let's say what they're interviewing a, a family member, a survivor, or a, a family member of a victim of, of let's say, Sandy Hook, and, and how the producers kind of move in and take over. Right. Now, this is what I would call an elite interview. That means the anchor, the national news anchor, which in the United States would be Diane Sawyer or Scott Pelley or Brian Williams, is going to handle the interview, and it's prepared. This is not some local reporter catching up with somebody on the street. And so there's an agenda here, first of all. People have to understand the network has an agenda. And just as this parent at the party was telling you, Grief, for example, is high on the list. And also the, quote, celebration of a life lost. So the producer is going to sit down with the mother of a child, say it's Sandy Hook, who's just been killed, and say, look, we're, you know, we're very, very sorry for your loss, and we understand how terrible this is and so on. 
But what we want to do in this interview is celebrate the life of your child because we want people to remember what's been lost here. And so we want you to talk about what she was like and how her friends thought of her and her family, what her hobbies and interests were, and so on and so forth. And we want to honor her memory. And this is a skill. The producer's skill is in winning over the grieving mother to his side before the interview ever takes place. Because who knows what this mother is experiencing? And probably talking about the life of her child while she was alive is the last thing for, on her mind. But that's what the network wants, because they're building a storyline. Uh, you know, horror, then shock, grief, loss, grieving, memorials, etc., etc., healing, you know, there's a storyline that goes with each one of these. It's the same basic storyline. And so they're fitting this mother right into that storyline. And the skill of the producer is to prepare the mother so that she will indeed give the information out to the anchor who's got questions ready. And to the audience watching this on television, if they're awake at all, it seems completely preposterous. Uh, on the one hand, that this mother could possibly be uh, talking about this at a time like this. Because any sane parent would be in such devastated condition that that just wouldn't happen. Yeah, they might blurt out things like, I am so angry, if I had been there, if I had had a gun, I would have stopped him. Why That's wasn't right. someone in the school armed? That's then... right, you see, and this is verboten. You can't do that. And as I pointed out in one of my articles... Isn't it interesting that of all the people who were interviewed at Sandy Hook, and I watched a lot of the interviews, I saw not one parent who expressed outrage or anger. Now, the audience is so conditioned by these uh, mass murders and tragedies and so forth that they don't even notice it anymore. But from the human point of view, it's ridiculous. There's going to be some parent that they can find, and probably a number of them, who would be extremely outraged and angry. But this is not permitted because it's not part of the storyline. They don't want to promote that because that leads to darker things like how did this happen? Is the storyline that we're really getting from the police correct? Exactly. Listen, John, let me jump in here. We'll take a time out, come back, continue our conversation. Television Network News as Mind Control with John Rappaport. From No More Fake News, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back, and you can say hello on Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash Richard Serrett. Right now, John Rappaport uh, is with us, uh, Pulitzer uh, nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, uh, has toiled in... Uh, uh, the mainstream media uh, as an investigative reporter for 30 years and then uh, as an alternative investigative reporter is written about politics, medicine, health uh, for, as I say, a number of mainstream organizations like CBF's Health Watch, LA Weekly, Spin Magazine. Uh, and now we're here talking about uh, television network news as mind control. 
And uh, John, when most of us, when we look at these uh, anchors at uh, CNN or CBS, ABC, NBC, and so forth, these are they always look. Uh, you know, they've got the the well-defined chiseled features. Uh, uh, if we're talking about a male. Um, even the, the you know the female uh, anchors have a certain look, but dignified. They look dignified normally, uh, but there's something missing. I mean, there's not a lot of passion there, and as you point out, and I think most of us are catching on to this fact, not a lot of curiosity. They don't ask the questions any normal curious person would ask. Yes, and that's how they're vetted. You see, because in that culture. You're supposed to have a high IQ, but that high IQ is kind of sealed off in its own container. It's quite conventional, really. It's not the kind of intelligence that is probing, that looks below the surface, that isn't satisfied with pat answers. And so if you're going to rise to the top in that business, then you have to be really an extremely conventional person who looks at issues in a preset uh, way and maintains that position for 5, 10, 20 years sometimes, which is extremely debilitating, but they do it. And that's what they're looking for. And the other thing that they're looking for is the voice. The voice has to be, I won't say soothing, but it has to put people in a kind of a light, suggestive state because it has behind it the kind of dignified authority that lets the audience know that, yes, this is the narrator of the storyline, and we are getting the story. And this is why the audience, um, even though they themselves start to come up with questions about the scenario, like in the case of Sandy Hook, well, I heard just a minute ago that they had, you know, there was another shooter. What happened to him? And then there was a third person that they had down the ground. That's three shooters. And ABC reported at one point that there were there was definitely a second shooter, <coughs> and now he's disappeared. What happened? And those questions have to be taken out of the game. And the way they're taken out of the game is that as the anchor tells the story, you see, and this is what happened, and then police are now reporting, and there's a certain dignity and a kind of sympathy, a tinge of sympathy, but very objective and so on. The desire of the audience to get the story from the narrator, the anchor, overrides any questions that the audience would have. This is mind control. This is obliterating history as it occurs and replacing it with another story, and that's the job of the anchor. And if the anchor can't do that, for whatever reason, that person is not going to remain the anchor. That ability, above all, to absorb contradictions, things that don't fit, to omit details that were reported as true five minutes ago and pretend they don't exist, to weave together the latest version of the story. All of that has to be pulled off in such a way that the audience buys it and that the audience is put into a suggestible state by the look, the demeanor, the voice, the attitude, the presence of the anchor. That's why Walter Cronkite was called, you know, 
the godfather, the father of our country. The I most mean, trusted man in America. The most trusted man in America, exactly. And that's why Brian Williams is called uh, the Cronkite of the 21st century, because uh, at NBC, he does a much better job than either Scott Pelley at CBS or Diane Sawyer at ABC News in convincing you of his absolute sincerity and command of the information. That's what's going on there. This is mind control, but people don't recognize it because they say, well, what else could it, you know, would we go for? What else would we be watching? I mean, that's how effective this mind control is, is that most people who watch the news, network news, don't even stop to think what it might look like if an entirely different person were the anchor, such as an aggressively independent mind who was not satisfied with pat answers from authorities. I mean, there isn't any such animal, and there never has been. I started watching the news as a kid in about 1953 when it really began to take hold on television. Douglas Edwards, who was one of these guys, pretty convincing. And then eventually that uh, morphed into Huntley and Brinkley, who were a smashing success. And then Walter Cronkite. And by that time, the whole idea of the anchor as the priest, the narrator, the storyteller, was created in the American mind. I mean, up until the early 1950s, there was no such animal on television because television was new. You had news roundups and that sort of thing. Uh, but you didn't have the anchor. And this is, people want story. They want to hear the story in a convincing fashion. That's the addiction. That's what allows people to go under and be mind-controlled. So it's the anchor's job to be the kind of storyteller that people want to listen to. That's why they listen to Brian Williams rather than Scott Pelley, or Scott Pelley rather than Diane Sawyer. It has nothing to do really with the content of the news. In case people haven't noticed or thought about it, isn't it rather amazing that in every major story of our time, all three networks, major networks, and all three major anchors always come out with the same basic conclusions on every story. I mean, you would think if you got three smart people in a room talking about something, you would come up with different conclusions. But no, this is all programmed. And people pick out their favorite storyteller. Well, it's time for me to watch Brian, or, boy, I let Scott is great, or Diane, she's my girl, and... You know, they may not say that, but that's what subconsciously, at least, they're thinking. You say that they take propriety, these network anchors, they take propriety to an extreme. What do you mean by that? They take it to the point where, and this is maybe difficult for some people to grasp, where looking below the surface of things to find out what's really going on is considered a ugly taboo. That's also the job of the anchor. We present the news to you. Here it is. This is what so-and-so says. This is what such-and-such says. And here we have this story. And now, over here, we have another story and so forth. And it's all very smooth and, and you know, 
weaved together and so on, to create the impression that to stop this flow, this hypnotic flow, and suddenly say, but this doesn't make any sense. (laughs) So let's dig deeper here. No. That is considered, in a way, an ugly interruption to the flow. It's impropriety to do that. It's uh, rude. It's impolite. That's what the anchor has to convey to the audience over a period of days, months, years, and so on. That the audience does not want to see that. That's, that's what the anchor is subliminally telling the audience. You don't want me to stop the story. You don't want me to stop the flow. You don't want me to stop everything and suddenly say, but you and I know, folks, that what I just reported here is completely ridiculous because it doesn't make any sense, and let me explain why. I think anybody would be able to see this. And so let's talk to somebody else completely who has a different take. No, 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 no. See, that cracks the storyline. The storyline now becomes thrown into severe doubt. Well, the audience thinks, gee, well, what is the story here? I don't know what the story is. I don't like that feeling. That's not why I tuned in here. That's mind control. That's hypnosis. And it's engendered and built up over days, months, years, decades by the networks to condition the audience to not want to stop music and look below the surface and find the contradictions and the lies that are being told by people that are otherwise supposedly very respectable and authoritative people. John Rappaport with us from No More Fake News as we talk about television network news as mind control. Now, is it how important is it for the what you call the elite anchors to believe the storyline that they're selling, the what you call the basic parameters and boundaries and context of a story? Do they have to buy into that? Or, I mean, how important is that? It's very important like any actor has to believe the role that he's playing when he's on stage. To me, this is one of the contradictions that is essential for an anchor to be able to deal with. He believes and he doesn't believe. He accepts the parameters, yet he doesn't. He's sincere and earnest, and yet he's cynical. He has to be able to embody all of that, but on the air, he completely believes. If afterwards he's having a few drinks and he thinks to himself, gee, that was just a, you know, what a dog story that was. That couldn't be true. But he made it true when he was on the air. And that doesn't bother him, see? He's that kind of a personality. And some people don't understand how people can be that way, but there are people, certainly, who are that way. You compare them to eunuchs. Yes. The eunuch who is... Uh, cut off, you know, literally, from society. Cut off from real human connection. Is trusted in the ancient courts. Very trusted because it's assumed that all of his, you know, personal desires and so forth have been eliminated. So therefore he can be a loyal, completely trusted person. And so the neutrality of the elite anchor when you really look at it and analyze it and take it apart, it's very much like a eunuch. It's neutral. It's very calm. It seems to be very uh, impassive, objective, factual. No real distinct 
heavy personality, all the edges have been rubbed away. That's eunuch. <laughs> you know what? Uh, when I look at the rep- rep- reportage uh, today and I see the way news stories are handled, it reminds me of uh, the uh, the journalists that worked for Stars and Stripes during the you know the times of war. And, and I go back to uh, you know one of my old favorite TV shows, MASH, and those people that were writing for Stars and Stripes and and uh, during the Korean conflict. Uh, and and I mean, I understand a certain amount of rally round the flag when the nation is under threat. And of course, now we're led to believe that the country is in a or that the world is in a constant state of threat from terror. So it's like everyone who's working in mainstream news is writing for stars and stripes. It's it's this over reliance on government sources, and it's almost there's this infallibility of these government sources. They never question them. If it comes from the FBI or the CIA or from the State Department, it must be true. That That's shocking to me. That angers me. Yeah, absolutely. And their job is to make the population not get angry about that, not to really ask serious questions or start throwing things at the screen and turn off the set. That's part of, you know, what they do is to be able to take those, quote, reliable sources and keep on spinning it out. What they say is the news. Yes, the FBI reported today that such and so a person, you know, might be prone to say, well, hold it right there. The FBI reported what? Isn't this the same lab that was, you know, unexposed some years ago, uh, faking all kinds of evidence? Of but no. You can't start asking all those questions while the news is on in front of you, otherwise you lose the thread of the story. So put that aside, listen to the anchor. Yes, the FBI reported today that three fugitives have been bubbled and so forth, and, uh, and there it is. The reliable source is unassailable. You can't question it. It just flows out as part of the stage play. The CIA said, uh, the Department of Justice, uh, the FDA, has approved a new drug. Yeah, well, I've been reading about 17 different drugs that were already approved, and then they were taken off the market because they were killing people. But why isn't the anchor mentioning that? No, the anchor is just saying today the FDA approved a new drug that will allow you to, you know, levitate up all the way up to the moon. Well, I guess it must be true. All right, listen, we'll take a time out. When we come back, we'll talk about how or who is grooming these elite network anchors. John Rappaport, no more fake news, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. John Rappaport is with us from No More Fake News. And, uh, uh, John, if people want to subscribe to your blogs, how do they do that? They just go to nomorefakenews.com and they just sign right up on the homepage for to get on the email list, and then they're emailed articles uh, right into their uh, email box. Very simple. Takes a minute. Uh, the Ideal Television Anchor and His Role in the Matrix is uh, the title of um, uh, an entry earlier this month, an earlier blog, and we're kind of riffing on that right now. But, uh, uh, you know, it's interesting, this program, we often start off with a clip from my favorite movie, Network. Uh, I mean, 1976, nearly 40 years ago, but more relevant today probably than ever. I don't, Paddy Chayefsky was, was tapped into something that he, a total genius, but that Howard Beale character who sort of broke loose, uh, you know, he was the respected, passionless, 
uh, voice of neutrality and then had some sort of uh, epiphany and uh, decided, you know, to break free from that, start telling the, the unvarnished truth. So then the network cleverly sort of repackaged him as the mad prophet of the airwaves, but a buffoon, you know, someone to be sort of laughed at, but isn't he amusing over here? Uh, I mean, are there Howard Beals out there today um, that are trying, you know, on network news that are, that are trying to, to, to break through but get, get slapped down? Cheryl Atkinson, CBS. Tell me about, about Cheryl. Well, she was a part-time anchor at CNN. Uh, I think she did maybe weekend anchoring at CBS on and off which is kind of like the second slot. But she's too smart. She's actually an investigative reporter, one of the only ones around, I mean, really, in mainstream television news. She broke uh, part of the horrendous details of Fast and Furious. She broke a couple of major stories during the fake swine flu epidemic. And uh, they kind of cut her off at the knees in my estimation. Dan now, Rather... She, oh, could sorry. Been a, a, she could have been a good anchor, but she didn't have that sort of conventional mind quality for it, so they just took her out of the, you know, out of the loop, and they put her in another role, which is, to me, turning into a quite limited role over at CBS. Dan Rather, interesting uh, guy. Now, I, I don't know if you've heard this story, but I was told that that um, he sort of was fast-tracked over at CBS, uh, eventually becoming network, because uh, this goes back to the Kennedy assassination, that he basically said, uh, when after viewing the Sapruder film, yes, he was shot from behind. Uh, and and that basically catapulted him to the anchor position. Is that, Have you heard that story? Is that true? I haven't heard it, but I doubt it. I mean... He may have said that, but I don't think that had anything to do with getting him into the anchor slot. In fact, that would have been a barrier to getting into the anchor slot. But I agree with you. He was interesting because there was always something boiling under the surface with him, and occasionally it would break out with a story, and uh, then he would get slapped down, and he would come back, and, and finally, you know, the little debacle about George W. Bush's Air Force Service cooked his goose. But there are talent spotters. The networks have talent spotters because, you know, they've got local news people all over the country doing television news. And so they're looking for people to bring up the line into bigger uh, venues, bigger cities, and so on, until finally maybe we've got somebody here Let's put him on uh, doing, you know, some reports for the evening news on CBS, and let's see how they pan out. Let's see how popular they are, et cetera, et cetera. And Scott Pelley, for example, came up that way. Brian Williams made his bones on covering disasters like uh, the Asian tsunami and Katrina. Diane Sawyer, on the other hand, is really somebody who never belonged on network news and got it by default. She was more like the oozing sympathy girl on, you know, the morning network shows, but they just didn't have anybody else, and they thought she was popular enough, so they said, okay, let's do it with her. But they're talent spotting all the time. And I'll say something quite radical here, and that is 
I believe that anchors like Brian Williams, Scott Pelley, from the time that they are small children, see themselves, envision themselves as the voice that is telling the story to a lot of people. They see that as their future. I have met kids like that when I was a kid. I went to college with one. When I first met him, I didn't have any idea who he was, but everything that he said came out of his mouth like it was a newscast. Let me uh, jump in here, John. We'll find out who that was when we come back. John Rappaport, No More Fake News, The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Let's talk toys, not teddy bears, a toy you really want from TELUS. Like a shiny new Samsung Galaxy S3 for $0. Now you don't have to wait to get one of the hottest phones on the planet. Get an unlimited talk plan for a limited time, and you can use that bad boy to talk and text as much as you want. Let's see your teddy bear do that. Get a hot new Samsung Galaxy S3 for $0 on a three-year term with select rate plans. Sale ends January 7th. Conditions apply. Tell us, the future is friendly. Are social media websites the arsenal of Western government? And why big agriculture would go bankrupt if the world learned the truth? Satisfy your curiosity at your nonfiction source for all suppressed and conspiratorial information, conspiracyculture.com. Books, magazines, DVDs, and special events. Conspiracy Culture, Queen Street, West Toronto, east of Roncesvalles. The bookstore for free-thinking Canadians. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740. Or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. John Rappaport is with us. No more fake news. We're talking about the ideal television anchor and his role in the Matrix. That's uh, the title of uh, uh, John's January 1st blog, uh, which you can uh, subscribe to at nomorefakenews.com. And uh, we'll get to some uh, calls here in a moment. Uh, Dana in uh, Connecticut and Don in Pennsylvania, both being very patient. Thank you. We'll get to you. John, you met this uh, young student in college. You said even at an early age, presented himself like a news anchor uh, and uh, almost was seemed to be being groomed for that role. Well, so who was it? He didn't make it. Ah. I watched him. But he was, you know, in the pool, let's say. There are a lot of kids like that. They grow up, they have a certain this capacity to make everything that they say sound very naturally authoritative. It's almost as if they're born that way. I think it's more like they just decide, this is how I want to be. This is what I want to do. I want to tell the story that people will believe. And out of that pool of, of, of kids, you know, three rise to the top eventually. That's pretty cutthroat. 
And so the ones that rise to the top and are tapped by the talent spotters, they have to have this mix of qualities that we've been talking about. The talent spotters will say they have to be credible. And what they mean is they have to be hypnotic. They have to put people in a suggestible mental state every night on the news to give the impression that everything they're saying is absolutely up-to-date and the best truth that can be delivered. How are they vetted and who vets them? Is it anything like, for example, a presidential candidate going to the Bilderberg meeting like Clinton in 92 and getting a, you know, a master's class in globalism from, from David Rockefeller and then when Clinton agrees, then Rockefeller says, thank you very much, Mr. President. I mean, is that how it works? Yes, that's part of it. In other words, when someone is spotted say, out there in St. Louis, hey, we've got a really good, you know. Okay, let's bring him to New York and put him on the New York affiliate of the network, and let's see how he does. Now he's in New York. Now there's a tremendous social scene in New York. There's the Council on Foreign Relations, and there's uh, all sorts of, uh, you know, foundations and museum events and fundraisers and this and that. And some of the most elite types in the world live in New York. Let's bring him into the social circus and see how he gets along. That's really a process of vetting. Does he fit in? Does he impress people? Does he convince us that he's not going to paint outside the lines? And you can, if you watch somebody close enough for a year or two in a social sort of swimming pool with a lot of elite people, you're going to be able to make a good estimate of what they are in terms of what you're looking for in this case, which is, you know, the anchor. And so it's an informal vetting process, but it definitely takes place. They look at his talent. They look at his ability on camera, all of that, yes. But now we want to see, can we trust this guy to deliver our network product without becoming a Howard Beale and flipping, without suddenly getting too aggressive. Because you have to realize that these anchors generally are also the managing editors of the news on that network, or at least their own uh, program, which is the news program. They decide which stories go on the air. So it isn't just the voice. So we want to make sure that this guy is not going to suddenly start trying to put on stories that are, you know, off the main line of the narrative that we want the public to believe. And this social vetting is a very, uh, you know, reliable way of doing that. Is this guy smart enough and yet dumb enough to always be painting inside the lines? Let's go to the phones, and to Connecticut we go. Dana, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Thank you. Yes, hi, Richard. Hi, Mr. Rappaport. Hi. I live about uh, seven miles from the incident in uh, Newtown, and um, I happened to be listening to the news that morning, um, and Channel 3, um, WFSB-TV out of Hartford, they, were, they said specifically several times that there was a maroon van with the window shot out that the uh, state police had in custody, and that there was another shooter they had in custody outside um, on the school grounds. <clears throat> um, later they said the uh, person on the school grounds was a hunter. Now, no one hunts. 
give me a break near an elementary school. <laughs> right. I mean, it's so ridiculous. I don't see why people just accept this. It's just, um, can you give me a reason, Mr. Rappaport? Well, I think that's what we've been talking about for the last 50 minutes. No one would believe it unless they were in a suggestible hypnotic state. It's hard for people to accept that, but that's what the television elite anchor does in these kinds of broadcasts. They could say anything. There's a man, you know, walking with a tiger in the woods, and he was arrested, and the tiger was sent to a zoo in Philadelphia. And people are going to believe that, because it's all in the way it's being delivered. And it's all the fact that most of these people watching this event on television have been watching television for 20, 30 years already. So they're conditioned. This is the whole point, is to give them their nightly hypnotic session so that when somebody says a hunter in the woods, they're not going to say, what, a hunter near a school? I never heard of that. They're going to say, oh, yeah, that's right. I heard he was wearing camouflage, so I guess he was a hunter. They're going to supply the information that the anchor doesn't even give them. They're going to connect dots to make the anchor as real and truthful and authoritative as they possibly can. This is what happens under hypnosis. If you have a hypnotist who is unscrupulous, he basically establishes himself as the authority figure for the patient or the subject. And he defines our reality. Defines reality, exactly. And that's what this is all about. So that anything that doesn't fit with the reality is automatically rejected or ignored by the patient or the subject. All right, Dana in Connecticut, thank you for that. Uh, Don is in Pennsylvania. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Don. Yes, good evening. Thank you, gentlemen, for uh, taking my call here. Mr. Report, Rappaport, I'd like to ask you a question. Uh, you just spoke to the last gentleman, as a matter of fact, and you said the whole point of these news anchors was to keep the public in a, uh, hypnotized, as it were. And what my question is, is what is the purpose of the uh, networks or whoever the powers to be are that they want these newscasters to have us not know the truth. What, what, what is it to gain for us to be hypnotized to accept anything? It would seem to me that it's detrimental to them for us not to know the truth. you understand what I'm saying? Yes, I do. But you have to understand what their agenda is, basically. And it's it's not something that I could fully explain in a minute, but part of it is the people that own the networks and the people who own the people who own the networks, their view of society and humanity and the population is it's dangerous and they need to be controlled and told what to think. Because if we don't do that, then things will get very unpredictable and chaotic. These are like wild animals that need to be tamed. Now, that may seem absurd, but this is kind of the way elite people view the rest of the population. And given that predisposition on their part, then they say, well, the purpose of our news network is really to provide a storyline in such a way 
that it will, as Richard just said, create reality as we want it to be seen by this audience. That's our job. And in doing so, we preserve the order. We preserve the society. We are actually doing good because if we weren't here and there was no central authority, ministry of information, then people would run wild and they would be in complete state of chaos and rebellion and the whole society would collapse. So we are doing the only good thing we could possibly do. I tell you, from my experiences with types like this, that's really underneath it all how they view the rest of us. And that's why they have that agenda. And that's why the truth is the last thing that they want to get out. Don in Pennsylvania, thank you for that. I think we have time quickly for Mark in Mississauga. Mark, go ahead. You're on The Conspiracy Show. Thank you very much for taking my call. Very interesting topic. And Mr. Ravenport's uh, uh, speaking about anchor people. You know, before I go to my quick question, just have a, a, what I've heard about before and what you're talking about. Uh, two, two quick questions. One is, is it true, because I heard this also on other shows as well, that the, the uh, mainstream news is controlled if you go right back to possibly United Kingdom in the uh, House of Windsor, going back to the Queen and so forth, and basically they control what is said on the news. And secondly, uh, about Lloyd Robertson. When uh, he started back in the mid-70s, I think it was a gentleman by the name of George Finstan, which also anchored at the same time. But after about a year, uh, Lloyd continued, and George was off the air. Just wondered if you might uh, know anything on George Finstan. I don't know if uh, John can speak to the Canadian scene, but just let's talk br- very briefly, because we're almost out of time, about the, the concentration of ownership. And I know mainly, you know, John, you, you concern yourselves with, with the, the, the United States. Uh, what is it, about three, four now major corporations own all of the major news outlets? Yeah, it's maybe five, six at the most, but it's completely concentrated, no question about it. So that tells you something right there. This is not, you know, free and easy news. This is highly centralized. And as far as Canada goes, there's nothing I can really say about that, except that they eliminate anchors usually because they don't have these qualities that we've been discussing for the last hour. They just don't match. It's, there's something about them that just doesn't provide that hypnotic flow to the audience, and therefore they have to go. All right. Once again, John, uh, how do people subscribe to your blog? They just go to nomorefakenews.com, and right on the home page... You'll see a little sign up there. You just put in your email address and you're in, and you'll get free articles in your email box from me and keep up with uh, all my reporting. And uh, The Matrix Revealed, very quickly, what is that all about and how can people get a copy of that? Uh, Right on the home page, you'll see a a graphic box that says The Matrix Revealed, and you just click underneath it, and there's a full description of the product. This is basically many years of research talking with people who were serious insiders in the game of media control, mind control, uh, intelligence agency type control, financial control, who left, who left, who got out, who escaped, and eventually talked to me off the record about the way 
the matrix is really put together and constructed. It's a huge product with a lot of information, and you can read all about it on my site. Nomorefakenews.com. John, always a pleasure to have you, and uh, appreciate your enlightening us uh, once you, again. Richard. It's always a pleasure to be here with you. Look forward to our next conversation. Thank you. John Rappaport. Again, the website for this program, richardserrett.com. I highly encourage you to log on, register, and uh, it's your portal to The Conspiracy Show. Also would appreciate a hello, twitter.com slash richardserrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Just going through my mail here, excuse me. <laughs> a little uh, behind. I haven't been in the studio uh, for about four weeks. I was on the road in, uh, in Los Angeles uh, filming uh, episodes or interviews for our upcoming uh, uh, season three of the television show. And uh, thank you once again for Victor Vigiani for stepping in over the holidays and doing such yeoman's duty. Uh, Victor, of course, from Zeland News Network, uh, who joins me uh, from time to time on the air to uh, discuss uh, ETs and uh, UFOs, etc. So thank you, Victor. Uh, anyway, I just got a letter. I've been worried about Nils Hammerin. Nils joins us uh, also from time to time. Now, Nils is up in his 80s, although he wouldn't m- m- know it if you met him. He's just a, an incredibly energetic a uh, healthy eighty-year-old, um, uh, although he must be eighty-two now. Anyway, I was a little—I've been a little bit worried about Nils because he was really in the eye of uh, of uh, Sandy uh, down in New Jersey. He's not too far from the uh, the Jersey Shore, hailing from Somerville. Nils is uh, the man behind the End Times Press and uh, the author of The Seal of the End Times. And uh, uh, really an expert in biblical prophecy and so forth. And as I say, he joins us on the air from time to time. It's been quite a while. And I've been trying to call Nils with uh, no success since uh, probably first week of December. Uh, No, later than that, um, end of November. Anyway, so as I say, starting to get worried. And then I got this letter from uh, Nils. Uh, Dear Richard, just a short memo to let you know that I've not been erased yet. When Hurricane Sandy hit Somerville, I thought we were all safe because of the high elevation. They're at about 700 feet. Sometime near 9 p.m., our building got hit by a mini tornado. There was a sudden buildup of hollowing or hallowing wind. Our feed to the TV began pulling through the wall, and the brick building shook. In seconds, the roof of the entire building was removed and transported to the parking lot. At the same time, water began cascading into our apartment. Water was all over. New Jersey inspected the building, and we were told we had to get out because of mold. A few days later, we were put in a vacant apartment 25 minutes away. Our phones are down, but heat and electric are still working in Somerville. Our mail is working at Box uh, 1000, Somerville, uh, 
that's the End Times Press, so I don't feel, you know, there's no problem in revealing his address. At Box 1000 Somerville, mail is still coming in, uh, in the same Somerville mailboxes. Uh, we will be told when we can return to apartment, uh, his, he names his apartment, in about five to six weeks. The roof is being repaired today. The apartment will be new when we go back. So that's the present situation. We don't have a phone working yet. Thank you for uh, the DVD you sent on the Antichrist. Nils was in season one of the TV show, was in our Antichrist episode, so I sent him that. We'll be in touch and hope you guys are all okay. Your buddy, Nils, Nils Hammond. Well, that's a relief, i got to tell you, to know that Nils is safe and sound. And if you're listening, Nils, I know he's able to uh, tune in down there, uh, listening in on AM 740, our flagship station. Uh, Good to know that you're well and uh, all the best to you and Beth. And I look forward to getting you back on the program. So please uh, drop me a note when your phones are back up. All right. Uh, I had an interesting conversation over the holidays uh, with a, a local paranormal investigator. They go and they investigate hauntings and uh, paranormal activity, or what, what, is, what the owner of the house believes is paranormal activity. So he was explaining that he and his team went into this house where this person was seeing these shadowy presences and uh, there was a room upstairs where toys were being thrown around, one of the children's rooms. And uh, so what they did was they cl- that the whole family cleared out. They went into the, into the house, big old farmhouse, uh, out uh, Stratford Way here in Ontario. They went down into the basement. And uh, this is something I'd not known, but they were, they were trying to communicate with this presence and they laid two flashlights on the table. Uh, the one on the left was for yes, and the one on the, on the, on the right was for no. And they asked this entity, uh, they said, do you need our help? And they, they instructed the entity to, to turn on one of the flashlights. And the one on the left, as I say, I think went no, and the one on the right said yes. So the flashlight turned on. Yes, I need help. Are you a male or a female? Or, or are you male? And then it was no. And then, okay, so you're female. Yes. Uh, went on and on and had this, this fairly lengthy communication with the spirit. And um, uh, so that got me, you know, sort of intrigued by this form of communication. I went on YouTube and I found episodes from an actual paranormal investigator TV show that's on, I think, the History Channel or something. And it's true. I mean, these, uh, this is is a form of communication that investigators use. And I don't know, there may have been some trickery involved, but I, I saw an episode and they were, in fact, communicating with an entity. And I watched the flashlights being turned off and on. So then, long story short, I tried to have this conversation with uh, a colleague of mine who works in the mainstream media, and the person just completely shut down. And I said, well, I think this is interesting. What do you think? They didn't even want to uh, have a conversation about it. They just rolled their eyes, uh, you know, derisively, and basically backed out of the room slowly, which, quite frankly, I'm used to. I get a lot of that. But, you know, it's interesting. You, you, you can't go certain places with certain people. Uh, and often this is the case if someone has some certain scientific, uh, uh, you know, background. They have certain parameters and boundaries within which they operate. And if you dare go outside, uh, they don't know how to, it doesn't compute. It's like you ever go into a McDonald's and you, go, you try to order off the menu. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a, a fun thing to do. They just, you know, they just shut down the person. That does not compute. I don't know how to have this conversation. Please go away. Uh, anyway, thankfully... There are people out there uh, who have a background in science, mathematics, for example, who are willing to have these conversations. And that's my next guest. Dr. James D. Stein is a past member of the Institute of Advanced Studies. 
He's currently a professor of mathematics at California State University, Long Beach. His list of publications is extensive with more than 30 research articles on mathematics and includes the books How Math Explains the World and his latest, The Paranormal Equation, a new science perspective on remote viewing, clairvoyance, and other inexplicable phenomena where he's here to talk about how science uh, or whether science can explain the unexplainable. Dr. James D. Stein, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Um, Hi, Richard. Thanks for inviting me on your show. And I'm a lot better in Redondo Beach, California, than I am where Nils is in New Jersey. Ah, indeed, yes. And will be until the earthquake hits. (laughs) All right. Well, until such time, uh, good to have you aboard. Now, as a mathematics professor, why would you even venture into this territory? I mean, mathematicians traditionally are pretty conservative. Well, scientists as a whole are pretty conservative in general, science being a very conservative activity. But nonetheless, there's a history of a lot of scientists, including really top scientists, who have believed in the supernatural and the paranormal and have been willing to investigate it. And my own personal interest uh, started, I would say, back when I was about 12 or 13 years old, because I was raised in a non-religious family, and so the concept of life after death was uh, never, even, never even occurred to me. And at about the time that I was 12 or 13 years old, there was a series of articles in the New York Herald Tribune about Bridie Murphy. Now, I don't know whether or not your listeners are familiar with Bridie Murphy, because, as I say, this occurred sometime in the 1950s. But Bridie Murphy was presumably an individual who lived in the 18th century. And a woman named Virginia Tighe was subjected to past life regression by a hypnotist. And under hypnosis, she started channeling this person, Bridie Murphy, who presumably lived in 18th century Ireland. And she started speaking with an Irish accent. And um, the New York Herald Tribune ran, uh, ran a series of articles, and it was fascinating. I mean, I'd never seen anything like it. And obviously, it must have interested a lot of other people as well, because uh, the, the series ran for about, uh, uh, ran extensively. I don't remember how long, but I just remember waiting until my father got home and would give me the papers so that I could read more about it. And then, um, even though this was by no means fraud in the sense that it was deliberately perpetuated, it was later discovered that there was a woman named Bridie Murphy Corkle who'd been a long-forgotten neighbor of uh, Virginia Ties and who had probably related some of the stories, and as a result, the Bridie Murphy experience got discredited. As I said, it wasn't fraudulent, but it was discredited simply because there was another explanation. And about that time, I was starting to get interested in math and science, and I liked the fact that math and science had explanations for stuff. But nonetheless, um, over the course of the years, I noted that there were a lot of mathematicians and scientists who believed in the supernatural and the paranormal. And that struck me as sort of strange, simply because science demands proof. And to date, there's been no proof of anything supernatural or paranormal. But nonetheless, my, uh, you mentioned that uh, uh, you had this friend who, as soon as you mentioned it, shut up and said, 
you know, sort of, it does not compute. I don't think all, all mathematicians and scientists are like that. And I think that, in general, science is best served by people keeping an open mind. And um, if you look at some of the distinguished scientists who've looked at problems like this, such as Albert Einstein, um, the psychiatrist, uh, Jan Ehrenwald, um, was very interested in telepathy, and he communicated with Albert Einstein. And Albert Einstein said explicitly um, when, it, when he was asked whether or not he, uh, he believed that physics had anything to say about telepathy, he said, I don't believe that from an a priori standpoint we can say that telepathy does not exist. For such a statement, our science is just too unsure and too incomplete at the moment. And I think that's the attitude that science should have about things such as the paranormal and the supernatural. I think it has to take uh, note of the fact that, to date, there's been nothing solid proved. But you can't prove it doesn't happen, and there's enough anecdotal in, uh, evidence and information to keep the books open and keep investigating. At least that's my particular point of view. I, admittedly, as someone who sort of uh, delves into paranormal research, one of the, one of the, the shortcomings uh, of paranormal researchers is uh, to argue from ignorance. So, for example, um, we don't know what that, uh, that sound is coming from the attic, and therefore it must be a ghost. Uh, or we don't know what those lights are up in the sky, but so therefore they must be ETs. That's a problem. But, but I mean, how do you think we should frame that question? We don't know what that sound is in the attic, therefore... Oh, I think at that stage what you just have to say is we don't know what that sound in the attic is. Um, what we can do is we can make lots of attempts to uh, understand what that sound is from the standpoint of the science that we already know. Um, for instance, when you, uh, when you described your friend who did the experiment in which, with the two flashlights, now, in, uh, what a scientist, I, and, and understand, I'm a mathematician, not a scientist in the Senate, but mathematics is, mathematics is definitely um, intimately related to the sciences. And I'd like to think that if I'm not a scientist, I'm at least a science, scientist wannabe. I've written a lot about science. I don't think, I think you're a wannabe, but let me, let me just jump in, uh, James. We're going to take sure. a time out. When we come back, we'll pick up on this point. Can science explain the unexplainable? Dr. James Stein. The book is The Paranormal Equation, right here on The Conspiracy Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Most of us think science is incapable of explaining supernatural phenomena. This would include everything from ghosts and communication with the dead to ESP, precognition, telekinesis. Scientists are generally highly skeptical of the existence of such phenomena because of the lack of the rigorous documentation that science requires. Nevertheless, many great scientists have believed and do believe in the supernatural. So says James D. Stein, the author of The Paranormal Equation, New Scientific Perspective on Remote Viewing, Clairvoyance, and Other Inexplicable Phenomena. So James, before the break, uh, I was asking you, so how, as a scientist, do you approach uh, the seemingly inexplicable, unexplainable? 
Well, um, a friend of mine once said to me something that I found uh, really cogent. He said that the universe consists of three facts, the known facts, the unknown facts, and the unknowable facts. And in order to, to distinguish between them, a known fact is something like Mount Everest is the highest mountain on Earth. There aren't any. We've measured them all. That's the highest. An unknown fact is whether or not life exists on Mars. We don't know whether or not life exists on Mars, but presumably at some stage we'll build, uh, you know, we'll build rockets that will get us to Mars. We'll take a look around, and then we'll know. And even if we never get to Mars, nonetheless, this is something that is certainly knowable in the sense that if we did get to Mars, we'd find out whether or not life exists. So that's an unknown fact at the moment. But an unknowable fact would be something that is true, yet is something that science could not demonstrate. And whether or not unknowable facts exist or not is something that um, is something that you might wonder about, and it wasn't until the middle of the uh, 20th century that mathematics actually discovered that there were that there were mathematically true propositions that mathematics itself was unable to prove. Now that sounds sort of strange when you when you first listen to it. How can something be true, and yet you not be able to prove it? Mm. And that has to do with uh, that has to do with the way we actually go about determining in mathematics whether something is true or not. And this isn't really uh, you know, this isn't really going to go into mathematics and be sort of uh, be sort of technical. Thank but it's you. Pretty easy <laughs> to understand. Okay. Um, if you wanted to determine whether or not the sum, uh, suppose that somebody said to you, the sum of two odd numbers is an odd number. Well, you could just say, hey, three is odd, five is odd, three plus five is eight, that's an even number. So what you just said is false. Right. Um, now, there are certain mathematical facts that have been proven. You learned one in high school that, uh, you know, the Pythagorean theorem that in a right triangle, the square of the hypotenuse is the sum of the squares of the other two sides. And that's proved by logic. But it's possible that there are facts which are, that there are statements which are true, but which cannot be proved simply because the nature of proof requires us to be able to write things down in a finite amount of space and to be able to read them in a finite amount of time. And you can't prove that, for instance, if you were to ask to determine that the Pythagorean theorem, you couldn't determine whether or not the Pythagorean theorem was true by looking at all possible right triangles. There just isn't enough time. So what you have to do is you have to come up with a logical argument. And up until the, 20th, the middle of the 20th century, people thought that if something was true, you'd be able to prove it. If something wasn't true, well, there's a counterexample somewhere like the 3 plus 5 equals 8, um, and you'll be able to find it. But a very famous mathematician proved in the middle of the 20th century that, well, actually in the 1930s, that there were true statements in mathematics that you could never be able to prove. And my contention is that if you look at what that says for science, if you extend that idea to science, it means that there are true statements about the universe that are physical statements, you know, similar to Einstein's theory of relativity or electromagnetism or gravity, in which 
they're true, they determine things that actually operate in the physical universe that we'll never be able to prove. And in that sense, that would be something that is unknowable. It's unknowable because it's true, but we'll never be able to prove it. All right. So what does that tell us, for example, about, let's take a look at the remote viewing program, and uh, ESP, clairvoyance. I recently traveled to Palo Alto, California, and I met Russell Targ, who I know is uh, featured in your book, uh, who, along with Harold Putoff, formed the Stanford uh, Research Institute uh, you know, in an investigation into uh, psychic phenomena. Now, Russell told me, he sat down, sat down with me in his living room, and he said, there is more evidence uh, that ESP is real and measurable than there is, for example, than that, that, that bare aspirin cures headaches or can alleviate headaches. And he says, there's, there's all the documentation we need. The, 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 the verdict is in, he said. How do you respond to a, to, to a claim like that? Well, first of all, Targ, um, Targ is a respected physicist. He's a respected scientist. He had publications involving lasers um, long before lasers were used to scan the prices in the supermarket. And so, um, you know, this is somebody whose opinion I respect. What I would want, however, the fact is that the physics community and the scientific community as a whole has either not looked at the evidence that Targ, ha- uh, that Targ can present, or if it has looked at it, it's reached a conclusion different from the one that he has reached. And this is a story that has happened continually throughout the history of science. When you, you know, when you read, you know, when you read a book about science, what you see is what science has discovered. Um, what you don't see is all the infighting and the uh, all the infighting and the arguing and the experiments that either proved it or didn't prove it that went on prior to when it was fully established. Now, as far as the statement about bare aspirin curing headaches, um, I think there's you know there's there's uh, established scientific to the effect that uh, I'm not necessarily Bayer aspirin, but aspirin has a positive effect on a lot of different, you know, on a lot of different conditions. It's been used for aspirin, not aspirin per se, that was invented in the late 19th century, but uh, uh, the active ingredient in aspirin, which I think is in the willow tree, that's been used for centuries, maybe even millennia. So there's a long history that that works. Believe me, it's in Bayer's interest to come up with studies that show that Bayer aspirin works, and those studies actually exist and are accepted by the scientific community. Um, if there is a study um, that, cl- that can show that remote viewing or telepathy or ESP is an established phenomenon uh, to, uh, to the extent that aspirin curing headaches is. I don't know of it, and I think the uh, um, I think the onus is on TARG to actually demonstrate it. And this is a relatively straightforward procedure. If he has the proof that will demonstrate it, he should be able to do so. The fact that these and if he does demonstrate it um, to the uh, in an unequivocal sense. 
I believe the scientific community will accept it because what has happened countless times before in science is that there has been an idea which goes against the grain of what everybody accepts, and then somebody demonstrates it unequivocally, and everybody says, okay, we're wrong, the new idea is right. And what Targ has might well be in that category, but at the moment he hasn't done it. At least um, my feeling is that if something like remote viewing or ESP is unconditionally established, what would happen is it would be getting more hits than anything on the Internet, even than the Kardashians or reality shows. And it hasn't happened yet. Well, it, it, there are millions of hits on remote viewing, but tell me, do, do you believe that it's a hoax? Um, I don't believe, uh, here's what I believe. I don't believe, uh, believe that it's a hoax in the sense that, um, in the sense that somebody deliberately sets up a remote viewing experiment with the intention to defraud people and, uh, and show that something is not the case. However, what I do believe is that many paranormal phenomena uh, fall under the heading of you haven't looked at the entire data set. And if you were to, um, I, I don't think maybe remote viewing is the best, uh, is the best of the paranormal phenomena to illustrate it, this. I think precognition is. I think almost everybody has at some stage awakened in the middle of the night and with the feeling that something, something bad has happened to someone they know or love. And so what they do is they make a phone call. 99.99% of the time, that person is fine. And you never hear about the phone call because this portion of the data is never recorded. On the other hand, the one time in whatever that there is something wrong, all of a sudden that appears in the data supporting precognition. And I think the same is true of remote viewing as it stands in the, at the moment. I don't believe that, uh, you know, I'm with Albert Einstein. I don't believe that the physics that I'm familiar with, and as I said, I'm not a physicist, can, un, uh, can unconditionally outlaw remote viewing. I think there are ways for remote viewing to be a viable phenomena. And as a matter of fact, I have a friend who, uh, uh, a good friend of mine, claims that, although I wouldn't exactly call it remote viewing, I think it's more... Um, I think it's more deja vu. He's walked into rooms and has known what is going to be in those rooms even before he walks into it. Um, and I believe him. You know, I believe that, that he's had this experience. However, I believe that there are millions of people who've walked into a room thinking that they're going to see something. It's not there, and they don't tell you about it. But I don't see that we can a priori uh, discard remote viewing as a possible phenomenon, but I'd sure like to see Targ's proofs, and if he's willing to send them to me, I'd love to look at them. All right, and uh, just uh, uh, not a scientific study, but uh, remote viewing, uh, Google, 31 million hits, the Kardashians, 28 million. <laughs> so the remote viewing has it, but uh, that's hardly, uh, you know, uh, apropos of nothing. Uh, regardless, uh, the paranormal equation, James D. Stein, Ph.D., a new scientific perspective on remote remote viewing, clairvoyance, and other inexplicable phenomena. But just continuing on with the remote viewing program uh, at Stanford University, uh, again, not scientific evidence, but it was funded by the U.S. government and the military for about 20, 25 years. I mean, that surely is suggestive of something. 
It certainly is. Um, <laughs> and one of the things, uh, um, one of the reasons that I believe that the remote viewing program was funded was because it was known at the time that the Russians and the Chinese also had funded remote viewing programs. And boy, I'll tell you, um, uh, you don't want anybody to get a jump on you. Um, especially uh, countries that you consider may have hostile interests towards yours. And if they're looking at something, um, if they might conceivably find it, you want to, you know, you want to be looking at it also. However, the rec- um, as far as I know, the record is that um, those projects have been uh, have been abandoned by the government, and they've been abandoned by and the government, as you know, well, I don't know about the Canadian government, but I sure know about the American government. They're willing to dump lots of money into totally ridiculous programs, and if they've stopped funding something, it's really a pretty good indication that they haven't found anything that they consider to be remotely, you should pardon the ad- adverb there, um, worth funding in the future. Uh, just um, a heads up that uh, Russell Targ will be on the show. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm hoping to get him on before the end of the month, but he has a new book out. It's called uh, The Reality of ESP, A Physicist's Proof of Psychic Abilities. So, uh, James, I know you'll be uh, looking forward to that, and uh, I'd be interested in getting your your uh, perspective on it. I think it's by the same publisher that published my book. So, Uh, yes, I'm very interested. Hey, maybe I should get the both of you on together and have a friendly... uh, um... Do you know something? I would love love to do so. I mean, uh, uh, I freely confess that I'm a skeptic, but just because one is a skeptic doesn't mean that that one digs in his heels and says, this is a line that you can't cross. Um, That, uh, in fact, I think that, you know... Um, I think that people who, uh, you know, the person to whom you referred to earlier um, when you said, okay, it does not compute and they're not going to go there, I think that's an exception. The mere fact, you know, as you mentioned, there are 31 million hits on, uh, on remote viewing. And my guess is that if you were to talk to a lot of scientists, what they'd say is, you, um, I, that yes, they think that the idea is very interesting, but at the moment, science hasn't found anything that can confirm it. And basically, in science, you're guilty until you're proved innocent. All right, uh, we'll take a time out. Dr. James Stein stays with us. The Paranormal Equation. Can science explain the unexplainable? Back with more. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Jim Stein is with us, uh, the author of How Math Explains the World, uh, but his latest is The Paranormal Equation, a new scientific perspective on remote viewing, clairvoyance, and other inexplicable phenomena. Let's get to Jeff, who's been very patient, waiting along uh, on the line in Michigan. Jeff, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Sarah. Uh, your guest, uh, Mr. Uh, Stein, I'd like to know if he has a known mathematical formula or something that would explain levitation with a Ouija board or a table or perhaps multiple levitation using this. Because, see, some of my friends and I are thinking we're affecting local gravity, and we'd like to design a set of uh, experiments to see if we can put this to some practical use. So, in other words, you've, you've, uh, while using a Ouija board, you've witnessed the board or the table levitating. Oh, more than that. I mean, we've witnessed the table levitating, the board levitating from the table, and uh, 
uh, the uh, planchette or, or device we're using for a thing to levitate above that, and we've seen the uh, board actually rotate. And uh, we'd like to know if we're, if we believe we're affecting local gravity, and we're trying to get some experiment, some direction to get experiments to see if we can use this to lift heavier objects. I know G- Jim is going to weigh in in a, in a second, but let me ask you, I guess, the obvious question, Jeff, that everyone listening is, is, is dying to ask, and do you have any videotape evidence? Oh, absolutely not. We wouldn't even bother doing that. I mean, these are, these are just people that are, you know, using it for other reasons, but, you know, this is the effects we're getting from it. But why wouldn't you videotape it, I guess is my question. Well, you know, we, we, you know well, the main reason is uh, nobody's got, you know, the equipment really to do it, and nobody really would, it'd be a waste of time. Most people, when we see stuff that people videotape, even, you know, like UFO pictures and that, they're always shot down anyway, so... We figure if the person want, is interested enough, they can see it for themselves, you know, up live, personal. All right. Not, you know, not all this, you know. All right, let's get our mathematician skeptic in here, Jim. Okay, there are a couple of things. And first of all, Richard, I'd like to thank you for asking the question that was on the tip of my tongue, as well as probably everybody else's, why he hasn't videotaped it. Um, Jeff, any phenomenon such as this, first of all, when it is a phenomenon involving the physical world. It's not so much the province of mathematics as it is of one of the sciences that it uses mathematics. But if you really have something like this, if something like this is really occurring, I guarantee that if you can demonstrate it, you're going to be one of the most famous people in the world. Now, by demonstrating it, I mean you're going to have to do something to convince people and that means convincing the scientific community as a whole that this is happening. And the mere fact that you are uh, that you are refusing to videotape it or to record it or to make any attempt to actually objectively determine that what you think is happening is actually happening is a big strike against it being accepted. Um, certainly, if you you know one of the uh, w- there was a very famous physicist in the nineteen 19- century, a man named William Crookes, who at the time uh, said that um, new forces must be found, uh, must be found. We are unacquainted with a sufficient number of forces to, uh, to explain the work of the universe. And um, gravity is a known force. Anti-gravity at the moment is not. It hasn't been demonstrated in the sense that you feel that you were demonstrating it now. But if you are demonstrating it, as I said, um, just invest the, uh, you know, invest the 40 or $50 needed to get a video camera. You know, you can just get, you know, a point and shoot has a video uh, attachment and make some attempt to verify it or alternatively get an independent, reliable person to record this and verify it, because without it, nobody is going to believe you. Well, your friends might believe you. Um, uh, People who are inclined to believe things like this might believe you. But in general, uh, a community such as the scientific community will not believe you without proof. Jeff, did you want to uh, respond? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, you know, I'm not a member of the scientific community, so I really don't care squat about whether I'm accepted by them or not. And I really would like to capitalize on this uh, for my own reasons. That's why we want the formula so we can design our experiments so we can do our own thing. I'm sure after all these years with how long these Ouija boards, I'm not the only one who's been doing this. 
so they must know darn well what they can be done with it. But I'm sure that there's some kind of for- formula, there's some reason why this, you know, effect is going on. And, I, you know, I just think it might have to do with, like, how these big stones that they built a pyramid were built or something. There might have been a way to get big, heavy objects to move. And- well, but, Jeff, if you want to capitalize on it, you're going to have to go before, you know, up here in Canada, we have a show called The Dragon's Den, where inventors and so forth, uh, you know, pitch their ideas to capitalists, investors. Uh, you know, okay, never mind the scientific community. Maybe they're even more skeptical. Try to try to convince a venture capitalist to buy into your idea. And, and I'm, you know, listen, I, I've heard so many anecdotal stories about weird things with Ouija boards. I think there might be something going on there. I happen to believe in the spirit world. Uh, but, uh, you know, a venture capitalist, there is a diehard skeptic. You need... You need to bring on someone to corroborate your story, a disinterested party, videotape evidence, something, Jeff. This is not being a debunker. This is, I mean, this, we're generally trying to help here. And, and uh, I've, I've talked to you before, Jeff. I find your, your, um, your um, experiments, if I can call them that, fascinating. We'd love to hear more. Anyway, we'll take a time out. Jim Stein stays with us. The Paranormal Equation here on The Conspiracy Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Jim Stein is with us, and uh, he is the author of The Paranormal Equation. Uh, part of the problem, I think, is that when we're talking about, uh, and you refer to it as weird stuff, uh, let's set aside ESP and telekinesis and, and something that, you, admittedly, you don't spend much time uh, discussing in the book. You've sort of categorized it as weird stuff, and that is, let's say, the UFO phenomenon. And that's something that we spend a lot of time talking about on the program, uh, because, uh, as you say, you know, part of the scientific uh, method is experimentation, and part of experimentation is something has to be, re- you know, repeatedly observed. So you can't you can't put a UFO under a microscope. You can't get up close and touch it and, and tweak it and, and uh, you know make notes and so forth. Although some people claim that they have, um, but what do we do with the UFO? Phenomena, because in terms of you know observability, according to the UN, since 1947, Jim, 150 million people have reported seeing a UFO. Now, let's say 99% of those can be explained: misidentification, swamp gas, uh, delusions, what have you. Even 1%, 1% of 150 million—that's 1.5 million people—that have seen something in the sky. We don't know what it is. We can't explain it. Um, so what do, you, what do you do with the UFO phenomenon? There is something, some, there is a phenomenon. Something is going on. Oh, I absolutely agree with you. Something is going on. But whether the something that is going on is visits from extraterrestrial flying objects or whether it's something that is psychologically happening isn't clear. But it's certainly worth continuing, you know, it's certainly worth continuing investigation. But the absence of an explanation does not mean just because what just because there are events that we cannot explain does not mean that an explanation does not exist. It just means that we haven't found the explanation at the moment. And yes, one possibility, and quite frankly, I think it's an extreme long shot, is that we are being investigated by curious uh, by curious beings from other worlds. I think that's highly unlikely for reasons that you know for reasons that basically stem from science. It's an extremely long Large universe. It requires an extreme amount of energy to get from another uh, another solar system to ours, 
And quite frankly, I'm not sure we're all that interesting. But nonetheless, that's just my particular point of view. But it doesn't mean that it can't happen. There's nothing in science that says UFOs are impossible, meaning that extraterrestrial visits from other species are impossible. I think there's a large body of scientists that believe that life has arisen on other worlds. Um, your, uh, your caller, Jeff, was asking about equations previously. There, uh, there aren't equations uh, for what he wanted to do at the moment, simply because he doesn't seem to be willing or able to perform experiments which would determine parameters which could fit into an equation. But there is a very famous equation called the Drake equation, which relates to the, pro, uh, the number of intelligent species that would exist in our galaxy or in the universe. And it's a question that has been investigated by scientists. And you're, I'm sure you're familiar with the idea of SETI, the yes. Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, yes. that has been going on for that has been going on for many years. And there have been occasional uh, occasional bursts of communications, or at least signals that SETI has found that they simply cannot explain. But they know, and all scientists know, that just because you can't explain something now doesn't mean that tomorrow you're going to find a perfectly obvious uh, explanation for it. And one thing that should be brought up is that um, when you look at the idea of UFOs, there have been things that um, the UFO phenomena really started in 1947, and people look back on various drawings from different cultures and say, well, this could be a, this could be a UFO, and when Ezekiel saw the wheel, maybe that was a UFO also. But um, I think that the scientific community as a whole, because there's no hard, hard solid evidence, puts it in the category of, might be, we're still willing to look at it. But here's, you know, when you were discussing with Jeff the idea of the dragon's den and inventors, one of the reasons that science is very conservative is because science has a limited amount of money to spend. And what it wants to do is it wants to spend it on ventures that will, that will prove fruitful. It's willing to spend it on high-probability ventures with not much in the way of payoffs, but very likely to achieve the payoff. And it's willing to spend it on low-probability uh, low, uh, low ventures, which have a payoff that could be extremely valuable. For instance, um, if you look at the, uh, there are numerous projects underway to develop fusion power, the same, pro uh, the same power that powers the sun, which could presumably generate power for, uh, for Earth, for all, you know, for into the conceivable future. It's very difficult, but because the payoff is so large, the government invests sizable sums of money in it. But at the moment, nobody seems to know what the payoff is for finding UFOs. There's no real solid evidence for it. And so you're not getting much in the way of government or scientific projects to being willing to investigate it. Well, maybe the, the, uh, the payoff for, for discovering you know, what UFOs are all about is the same as the fusion question, uh, energy. I mean, if these, if these craft... Uh, uh, you know, can 
you know, traverse tremendous, uh, you know, distances and so forth and seem to flit in and out of uh, reality and defy gravity and so forth. Maybe that's, it's all tied in together. But let me, let me move from the Drake equation to uh, Sheldrake, Rupert Sheldrake, that is. And, uh, oh, about uh, 10 years ago, he published a book called The Sense of Being Stared At. Um, which examined the, the sort of the psychic staring effect. And there was an experiment where blindfolded subjects, they had to guess whether persons were staring at them or at another target. And according to Sheldrake, and again, there were tens of thousands of trials, 60%, 6-0, 60% of subjects reported being stared at when, when being stared at. 50% of subjects reported being stared at when they were not being stared at. So what does that mean? Uh, it suggests a weak sense of being stared at, but no sense of not being stared at. I'm not even sure what that means. What do you make of, of the work of Rupert Sheldrake, Sheldrake and that, that sense of being stared at phenomenon? Well, I certainly feel that, we're all, that we've all sensed the idea that we're being stared at. And um, I'm not familiar with uh, I'm not familiar with Sheldrake's work, although I have seen his name uh, in in uh, in certain contexts before. I'm not familiar with this particular experiment, but I do know that um, to some extent this is tied up with the idea that um, a lot of our sen- uh, a lot of our senses. Um, stem from when we were when we were lower level animals on whom for whom sensory perception is extremely important it's it's their very survival they have to be able to know when they're being stared at by a predator and to a certain extent a lot of this information or is encoded on uh, in uh, in our physical being, and it's a holdover from when we were animals. For instance, just like you know, just like um, we have uh, uh, we have portions of our body that are no longer really used, but we're sort of stuck with them, like the appendix. Um, I think the idea that um, that we have a sense of being stared at probably comes to a certain extent from uh, from the creatures that we were before we evolved into being humans. But doesn't now, that suggest the existence of a... Own feeling. But doesn't that suggest the, the existence of some sort of a subtle energy? How do we know we're being stared at if we don't see the person or the whatever is staring at us? Doesn't that suggest the possibility there's an ex- the existence of a subtle energy we're picking up? I'm not sure whether or not it's a it, whether or not it's a subtle energy, but I do believe, for instance, when you discuss things such as ESP, um, I would be, I, I would agree with Targ in that there is such a thing as ESP, but I'm not sure that his idea of what ESP is and mine are precisely the same. What I think of ESP is. Um, things such as Malcolm Gladwell mentioned in Blink, when you make these split-second decisions. And I think what ESP is sort of like is it's a combination of our senses and our brain, uh, our brain putting all the information from our senses together in ways that we don't consciously realize. I think that that sort of, um, uh, that could explain a lot of what we consider to be ESP, and in a sense, it really is ESP. It's perception that even though some of it is derived from sensory information, some of it isn't. And the idea that we're being stared at, um, there's a point that I do make in my book. I believe that basically 
um, even though I'm not sure that the energy that you describe is something that's immediate, that I can immediately put my finger on, basically anything we do creates a change in the universe. That change should be detectable. If you take a look at what we're planning to do, we have, we have experiments now. We're planning on putting up telescopes that will enable us to look at the surface of planets that are light years away. Who would have believed that this was even remotely possible 50 years ago or even, uh, even maybe 20 years ago? And yet, this is actually a project. Something that happens light years away on a planet is something that we can devise the, uh, devise the machinery to detect. That's because a change is taking place in the universe and there's machinery to detect it. I think it's remotely possible. And, I, I, and you know, science in general can't rule out anything. All it can say is whether or not something is, is probable or improbable and assess the degree to which it's probable or improbable. But I believe that basically anything that happens in the universe produces a change and that change should be detectable. Um, whether or not it's detectable by instruments or whether it's detectable by our senses or whether it's detectable by some sort of senses that we have but have not yet come to grips with, that I don't know. Let me ask but you I about... I believe that changes in the universe are detectable. Very quickly. Um, theoretical physicists now talk about the existence of... I don't know what the number is now in terms of... Uh, um, um, you know, dimensions, whether we're at uh, 11, there are 11 dimensions or we're talking about, you know, things like hyperspace and, and, and these, and, and some of these dimensions are, you know, um, you know, micrometers from our, from our, they're staring us right in the face, but we can't detect them. It's like the goldfish in a pond. He doesn't know, you know, above him, uh, there's this whole other world right. as we look down at the goldfish. So do you think that, uh, that if these hyper dimensions exist, that, that could explain a lot of paranormal activity because it's like you're looking down at the goldfish and you stick your finger down into the water. The goldfish can't, can't, can't even conceive of where that finger came from. Um, so, you know, in his small mind, that's some sort of supernatural event. <laughs> Do you think hyperspace can explain one day paranormal activity? Um, I'm not sure to be honest. But what I do think is that um, the idea of other dimensions is sufficiently viable from a standpoint of physics that what they are doing is they are trying to figure out experiments to see what, um, to see whether or not um, changes can be detected that the presence of other dimensions would induce. Now, um, when you talk about paranormal phenomena, um, the paranormal phenomena of today might be the everyday occurrence of a hundred years from now. That's been the history of science. For All instance, right. if you if, and Jim, I, I got to I got to cut you short here. I apologize. Sure. We're out of time, but listen, let's do this. Let's pick this up again. And a fascinating uh, conversation. I'd absolutely love to. We I've will. enjoyed it, and I would love to talk with Russell Targ. Well, I'll set that up. Jim okay, Stein. Terrific, Richard. The paranormal equation. Thank you, my friend. Take care. All right. Thanks to Tim Spreen for production back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be along for the ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Whew. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air. 
and The Garden Show.